for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, and verses 27 through 31. I will be reading Polish. The English translation will be on the screen as I read. Z Chrystusem jest podobnie jak z naszym ciałem. Mamy jedno ciało, ale części ciała jest wiele. A chociaż jest ich dużo, mimo to tworzył tylko jedno ciało. W taki właśnie sposób my wszyscy zostaliśmy zanurzeni w jednym duchu i zostaliśmy włączeni w jedno ciało. Żydzi i poganie, niewolnicy i wolni. Wszyscy zaczerpnęliśmy z jednego ducha. Ciało nie składa się z jednej części, ale z wielu. Wy jesteście ciałem Chrystusa i jesteście dla siebie nawzajem częściami tego ciała. Bóg najpierw umieścił w kościele apostołów, potem proroków, potem nauczycieli, następnie obdarzył niektórych darem czynienia cudów, darem uzdrawiania, darem niesienia innym pomocy, darem zarządzania lub darem języków. Czy wszyscy są apostołami? Czy wszyscy są prorokami? Czy wszyscy są nauczycielami? Czy wszyscy mają dar czynienia cudów? Czy wszyscy otrzymali dar uzdrawiania? Czy wszyscy mówią obcymi językami? Czy wszyscy potrafią je tłumaczyć? Starajcie się o największe dary, ale ja pokażę wam coś jeszcze doskonalszego. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, good morning, church. Uh, Pre-K is dismissed. Uh, I think that applies to the three- and four-year-olds who are among us. Uh, A reminder that starting today, there is no children's church for the rest of the summer. So just so uh, we're all aware of that, there's no children's church uh, from now until, I would assume, uh, September, but I don't have the official date in front of me. Um, With that, uh, good morning. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is David. I... uh, Well, my title is going to change here soon. Uh, Right now, I am the pastoral resident here at Trinity City Church, but eight days from now, uh, I will be starting as pastor of Centennial Evangelical Free Church. So um, suddenly, um, suddenly my my days here are very, very numbered. Uh, You'll have me for this Sunday and then next Sunday, and then uh, after that, uh, I'll be starting my new job on June uh, six, I think is what it is. So super excited to announce that to you. I've been uh, interviewing and connecting with Centennial since about late February. And last Sunday, I went and did something called candidating, which is like you go there, you do a Q&A, you preach, whatever. And uh, they approved my call as their pastor. So again, super excited about that. I'm also saddened by that transition. I'll try to save some of my emotional goodbyes for next week. Um, but uh, until then, uh, let, me, let me pray for our time together in uh, 1 Corinthians. So let me pray. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Um, thank you for this church. Thank you for what you are doing here in St. Paul. Father, I pray that as we open your word that uh, you would help us to hear it by the power of your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are receptive to your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would be one unified people, unified under the banner of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Tomorrow we celebrate Memorial Day, and for those of you who don't know what that is, Memorial Day is a day honoring those who have died in the nation's wars. Uh, war is a reality that's been regularly talked about in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, there are mentions of organized fighting regularly in the Bible. And one of the most vivid stories of conflict comes to us in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, in this story, the Amalekites, a group of people who were descended from Esau, if you remember him, well, the Amalekites came and raided and destroyed the city that David was staying in. David and his army were away from the city at that point in time, so it says, when David and his men reached home in Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David was greatly distressed, and each man was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But after grieving what had taken place, like action movie heroes, it says David and his 600 men set out to go and rescue their family members. But something odd happens along the way. It says about a third of the army, about 200 men, get too exhausted to continue with the journey. And we don't know what exhausted them, but they ended up staying behind. Now, despite the loss in numbers, it says David and his men went to the Amalekite camp. They overwhelmed their foes and rescued every single member of their community. The text tells us nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. So not only did they get what they came for, but they got something on top of that. So this is a happy ending, right? Like everybody's rescued, all is well. Well, not so fast. It says, Then David came back to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bezor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder that we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Now, the New International Version that we read really doesn't mince words about who's at fault in this story, but let's put ourselves in the minds of these so-called evil men just for a second. You just traveled a great distance grieving the loss of your family. You got deserted by those around you because they were too tired to carry on. You had to fight extra people and rescue more people because the ratios changed. And now you get to hear that the people who did not help a wink in the fighting get some of the extra plunder that you won. Is that fair? No, they can, they can have their wives and their children, but the extra payment belongs to those who did the big things, the important things. That's the argument that these people made. And yet David says to his troops, no, my brothers, you must not do with what the Lord has given us. You must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He's protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. 
Now, we're not studying 1 Samuel this morning, but the problem facing David and his troops in that story is the same one that we find in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. How do we maintain unity when there is a diversity of how people have contributed to the overall goal? The church in Corinth was disunified. Think back to the early portions of this letter when we read such statements like, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Paul, or our personal favorite, well, I follow Jesus. However, here we find a different reason for Corinth's disunity, and that is because the church was evaluating the importance of people within the church based on how visible or apparent their giftings were. It was a value that was assigned based on how each person was contributing. So what Paul is going to do this morning in our text for the Corinthian church and for us is to try and remedy this faulty way of thinking that we often adopt. He's going to try and unify the church by reminding them that there is a unity and a diversity within the body. And both of those things are present, not because of anything that we do, but it's because of what has God has done. And therefore, in the end, like David's army, we all get to share in the same blessing. So that's where we're going today. So go with me to verse 12. Paul writes, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So last week we touched on some of the various gifts of the Spirit, and we'll revisit those somewhat briefly at the end here, but more uh, concretely in a few weeks. Um, but for now, Paul shifts our attention away from these gifts to an illustration of the church of Christ as similar to a human body. And it's similar to a body in that we all have unique members, we all have unique parts, and yet there is one body. There is an interdependence that is present among us. Yes, we are unique, but we all need each other. So despite any perceived differences, there is unity that is among us. But our unity as a church body is not because of something outward, Paul says, like ethnicity, like all of us are Greeks or Jews, or socioeconomic status, like we're all blue-collar workers or we're all white-collar workers. No, what's unified us is the Holy Spirit. The abiding and continual presence and influence of the Holy Spirit in our corporate and individual lives, that's what's united us. You see, when you and I became Christian, when we believed the gospel, the Bible says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to us as a guarantee of our future inheritance in the kingdom with Christ. But what we need to remember, and this seems kind of obvious, but what we need to remember is the Spirit living inside me is the same Spirit that's living inside you. There's no difference in the spirit. There's no one who can boast about having a better spirit or a unique spirit. We have the same spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit who Jesus defines and says he convicts the world of sin and righteousness. We have the same spirit, Jesus says, who produces in us the same fruits of the Holy Spirit. We have the same spirit who causes our hearts and our mouths to repent and believe the gospel and cry out, Abba, Father. We have the same Spirit. We have the same Spirit indwelling all of us, and He is what unifies us. 
So the application, Paul says, is that when we drift off into dissensions and divisions and disunity, it is often because we have missed this critical reality that's uniting us. I mean, it's kind of like division in the church is kind of like you're making a your mama joke about somebody who's a biological sibling. It's just stupid. Like, can you imagine going, your mama's so fat? No, we have the same mom, dumb-dumb. Like, what, what are you talking about? Why are you trying to dissociate from me or separate yourself from me? We can't. We have this same important unifying characteristic. And that means, church, in 2022, you and I are uniquely and permanently tied together. We are stuck with each other. I'm stuck with you, and you're stuck with me. So the call is that we might recognize the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit. And because when we recognize that unity, that we have the main thing, the important thing, the critical thing, the crucial thing, that'll lead us to be more kind to one another, more tender-hearted, more patient, more loving, more brotherly affection, and less of this gross disunity that's going on in the church today. Ray Ortland, who's pastored for a long while in Tennessee and currently serves as president of Renewal Ministries, recently left Twitter, and actually he's one of many prominent Christians who have recently left social media, and he wrote this for the Gospel Coalition as to the reason why he left the social media platform. He says, I'm grieved by the behavior of Christians on Twitter. There are so many Christians that I admire, but Twitter can arouse the mean streak inside every one of us. And some of us honestly don't realize the harm that we do, the reckless accusations, the eager gotchas, the angry finger-pointing, the trigger-happy reactions, the flippant slanders. He says, I was rarely the charge uh, or the target of such ugliness, but just observing it, my soul began to suffer and I felt dirtied. Ortland continues, I love to say, gospel doctrine creates gospel culture and we all fall short of embodying the beauty of the gospel. But when we cross the line into displaying the opposite of Jesus repeatedly and publicly, I object. I object with every fiber of my being. I refuse to be involved. Disunity, slander, libel, accusations, gotchas, dunking on people, they're all things that are antithetical to the gospel and to the unity of the church. Paul warned us six chapters ago that slanderers in person or online are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Unity is not some optional add-on to the local church. It's what makes us the local church. And it's not some sort of idea like, oh, we're a unified church. No, it's something that we should be able to see and experience. It's something tangible. It's what separates us from the world around us that often is in disarray. In fact, Jesus says the unity in the church is a form of evangelism to a watching world. So let's pursue that unity, friends. If we believe the same gospel that Jesus Christ died to save sinners and he rose again victorious over death and sin, then what are we fighting about? What are we being so hostile over? And may we repent of our disunifying ways and recognize the unity that's to be had in the Holy Spirit. But Paul continues, what do, what do we do with all these different personalities, these different perspectives, these different emphases, these different gifts? 
Verse 14, he says, Even so, the body is not made of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So, Paul says, there's unity that's in the body of Christ, bought by the blood of Christ and given to us by the Holy Spirit. But Paul moves on to acknowledge that there's also diversity given by the Spirit as well. And mainly he's talking about diversity of spiritual gifts, but I think we can apply this to other areas as well. If you've spent any time in the church, I hope that you will have found out by now that the church is a diverse group of people, and not just in socioeconomic backgrounds, but specifically we have people here at Trinity with different interests, different hobbies, different personalities, different ways of relating. And this diversity is meant to be there because it comes as a testimony to the fact that God is not the God of Jews only, He's not the God of white people only, or country music fans only, but He is the God of all people. And yet, even if we do look the same or we have similar interests, there is a diversity in how God has gifted every one of us at this church. Specifically in Corinth, we see this variety of spiritual gifts that have been given by the Holy Spirit, different gifts but the same Spirit. We see the Spirit giving such gifts like speaking in different tongues or the ability to interpret those tongues, to prophecy, to heal, to teach, to shepherd, to evangelize, to administer, to be merciful to, to lead. And all of these gifts and more were on display in that local church. But the problem that was facing Corinth is what would happen is that people who had these more visible gifts would become full of themselves to the point where they belittled others and their gifts. Or the people who seemed to have the less impressive gifts would become distraught and think, boy, I'm not as important as some of these other people. Paul addresses both of these parties here in our text. He says, feet and ears, chin up. Chin up. You are important members of the body and you are indispensable contributors here. Head and eyes, Y'all ain't that special. Y'all not. Y'all ain't that special because the church would stink without the hands and feet and ears and nose. And he can say those things to us because of the central truth that he gives us in verse 18. He says, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. It's like God is painting with Bob Ross, man. You can put that bush or that tree anywhere that you want it to be. It's your canvas, and the church is God's canvas. And so degrading or dishonoring or belittling people based on what sort of gifts that they had was not just your way of going against them, but it was your way of standing toe-to-toe with the sovereign God. Think about these pastors or these professors who get these massive egos. Oh, I'm so impressive that I can speak in front of people or teach or say eloquent things or I sat in so many seminary classes. Friends, what I want you to know is that Jesus has never promised 
to repay any leader back for a sermon or a lecture. In fact, Jesus says that you are going to be judged more harshly if you teach. But Jesus does promise to pay back the one who brings a cup of cold water to a fellow Christian. That's what Jesus promises to do. That's what impresses him. You see, our problem, Corinth's problem, really America's problem, is that we have this mis-evaluation of what is great in the eyes of God. You know what's great in the eyes of God? Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the small things. It's doing things in private, not telling anyone about it. It's thanking God for what you have, thanking Him that you are now a merciful or administrative or teaching person. Hey, man, I'm just empowered by the Spirit, and I am trying to image God in these things. That's the attitude. That's what's greatness in the eyes of God. And until we get that through our thick American, Western, individualistic heads, the church will not be this unified, diverse bride that she's supposed to be. She won't flourish the way that she's ought to flourish. We'll continue to have Christianity Today producing podcasts like the rise and fall of blank church because of abusive leaders who don't know the gifts they've received are gifts given to them by God. To labor the point, look specifically at the word choice that Paul gives to these personified body parts, and they say things like, I don't need you. Part of what makes unity possible in the church, brothers and sisters, is a recognition that we need each other, that we're connected, that there's interdependence, that each member of the body is important, that each gift is important in the church. For example, what would be the point of someone who could speak in tongues and no one could interpret? What would be the point of a church with robust teaching but no mercy ministry or care ministry to live out that teaching? What's the point of a great evangelist who can captivate a crowd with his voice and yet did not have the gifts of shepherding around him who could come alongside these new believers to shepherd them and guide them in the ways of the faith? What's the point of a visionary voice in a ministry without an implementer who can actually execute that vision? And of course, what's the point of a church gathering without someone who can actually cook some decent food? Despite our differences, we need each other. We are all vital and important. Paul continues, those parts of the body that seem weaker, they're indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. No, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that have lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. So Paul says, just like a human body, there are going to be members that seem weaker, less put together, less presentable, who do activities and have giftings that some people might deem less honorable, but that doesn't make them any less important to the body. For us, these verses are easier to take in because when winter comes in Minnesota, it's often your hands and your ears that alert you to the cold first. They are weak against the cold. Your hands turn blue, your ears turn bright red, and so you cover them with hats and earmuffs and gloves and mittens to try to protect them. 
But who among us would want to live a day without hands or without ears? In the same way, Paul says there are going to be some parts of the church body that we deem unpresentable. The parts of the body that he has in mind are probably the ones that you've covered not only with outer clothing, but also with your underwear. You've made extra efforts to keep these parts of yourself concealed, but that does not make them any less important. Those parts of the body are critical to the vital realities and rhythms of life, like getting rid of waste, making love to your spouse, or having children. So Paul is making a point about how the people in the church that we might see as less presentable often should be treated as special because they do have a special purpose here. They ought to be protected and covered by the love and encouragement and help of fellow Christians. Those members of the church that seem replaceable or they don't seem to do the things that the world deems impressive, God says they are the most important, indispensable people in the church. Who made, for example, who made and set out the signs that alerted people that there was a service going on? And told them where to park? Who greeted people at the door this morning and made them feel welcome? Who listened to the stories of the people who came in off the street and made them feel loved? Who made the coffee that made us awake and soothed our throats? Who restocked the cups that you're holding for your coffee? Who made sure the water, electric, and gas bills were paid so we could have lights in here and a decent blowing air conditioning? Who made the bulletins so that we could know what's happening in our church calendar? Who watched the kids Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday so parents could focus and the children could learn at their own pace? Who cleaned up the vomit or the poop or the urine in that kid's room so that room could even be used in the first place? Who emptied the trash around the church so that it's not piling up? These are the thankless jobs that don't get a lot of honor, but all of them, all of them, all of them are vital and important. Like, I'm sorry, but like, what I'm doing up here, like, reading from a manuscript, like, it's just not that impressive. Like, it's just not. Like, anybody could do this. Like, I don't know a lot about physics, but like, if you gave me a manuscript to explain physics to somebody, I could at least try to make it interesting. Like, most of my content today is either stolen from the Bible or influenced by other people. Teaching ain't that impressive. What we deem impressive, in fact, God deems dispensable. A lot of leaders have been replaced throughout the Bible and throughout church history. And guess what? The train has kept on rolling. Because it's not the preachers, teachers, and professors who make the church. It's Jesus who builds his church. If you're here this morning and you've got an awesome gift like teaching or preaching or speaking or prophesying or whatever you want to call it, your call is to preach the gospel in a way that is impactful for people. Die and be forgotten. That's your calling. If you're called to be a leader, that's what you're meant to do. And if you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out what sort of body of believers you should join, I would encourage you to join a church that's not a church of a cult of personality led by some charismatic guy. No, if you want to join a biblical church, a unified church, listen to this counsel from a professor in New York. He says, be a rebel. Find a boring church in a denomination where pastors have outside of accountability, where Sunday is about Jesus and not the sermon 
with unimpressive music, a pastor who explains the Bible in 20 minutes or less and hardly ever posts on social media. <laughs> pastor Brian sent that to our group chat and was like, this guy gets me. Um, but, but let me be clear, the, the music here is not unimpressive. I uh, just wanted to say that. And we're closer to 30 minutes than we are to 20 minutes, but that's all beside the point. The point, the, 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 the comment that Paul's making here is the church's part should have equal concern for each other. It's not about one guy or a group of guys. It's about all of us. And he says that concern comes out in two ways. He says we rejoice with our brothers and sisters and they're rejoicing and we weep with the people around us who are weeping. But if you're following along in your Bible, you'll notice the word there isn't even weep. The word is suffer. We suffer with those when somebody else is suffering. We're to be so unified that when we feel a pain on the outskirts of the church, we feel it too. To use this example, when you get a pain in your hand and that pain goes into your brain, your nerve center, that means your body's working. If I'm able to chop off your hand and you not feel a thing when that happens, your body was already broken before I did anything to it. So Trinity, in the last month or so, when someone has shared something hard, either to you individually or in a group setting, have you suffered with them? Did you feel that pain with them? That's what Paul is calling us to do. Paul says, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Everyone who believes in Jesus is important and has value and has worth and has a purpose. It's about Jesus, and it's about us being a community that loves and cares and values each other. Now, that's not to say there aren't people here, and, and I know a ton of people here who have been wonderfully gifted by God, but if we have those gifts, those gifts, they're not our focus. They're not our source. They're not what keeps us going. No, God is, Jesus is, the gospel is. We focus on each other. We don't focus on ourselves. Paul summarizes, he says, God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, and then prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Answer to those rhetorical questions is no. But each of those gifts is vital and necessary for the church to be diverse and unified and healthy. Paul concludes for us, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I'll show you the most excellent way. Next week we'll go more uh, into more detail about what that most excellent way is, but Paul's point here is this, your gifts, my gifts, the church's gifts, they all have a purpose. And that purpose is not for self-glorification to celebrate ourselves, but they are to glorify God and celebrate both the unity and the diversity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. As King David said to his army, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what God has given to us. He's protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. And of course, on this side of the cross, we know that God has protected us and delivered us, not from a raiding party of the Amalekites, but from our real enemies of sin and death. 
and he defeated them at the cross where you and I got publicly called out as unimpressive, sinful rebels of God. But it's also the cross of Christ that shows us how loved and accepted we are and what sort of life God has called us to. And so now in light of that cross, in light of that mercy, we who have received that protection and deliverance are brought together in unity by the Holy Spirit to glorify this great God who has given us a diversity of gifts to share together.